them that I was like an American or Zionist agent or something. I mean, just it's just so crazy because like because I guess they don't ever assume. It's funny because like it's like don't generalize Muslims, but they never expect the Muslim to look like this or to have a name like Mark Judd of all things. So what is um, your half Indonesian and what? Uh, okay, so my heritage is, is is a hodgepodge. So yeah, my, my mother is no, Indonesian. Stop. Wait, no, because I'm, this is one of the questions I'm asking you. So do you want to wait? Oh, okay, for that? yeah, you want to save it. You no, know, do yeah, you want to? I don't know it. if you want to disclose that or not. Oh no, actually, for that I'm fine. I'm fine with it. I mean, the funny thing is that if, if anybody anybody who knows me personally, if, if they were to read any one of my articles, they would immediately know that it's me. Um, okay. It's like it's just it's almost too obvious, especially when I write about Indonesia. Interesting. Yeah, that's another question yeah. I had. You had this mystical element to it, which was fascinating. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right, so no, I'll wait. I'll wait till then, so you're not repeating yourself. Okay, cool. No, no, Whatever. it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no, but that's that's really funny about about being suspicious. That's that's perfect. Oh, I was hundred percent. I'm like, this looks like there's there's because there's a few. Um, I've seen that before, where people are are just mm. looking for ways to gather data on other folks, and it's not, yeah. yeah. Such thought, yeah. Which I don't mind because whatever. But you, you definitely. No, no, it's totally fine. Yeah, it definitely puts you on guard. So, so my point is that you're probably going to have maybe the same issue with other folks. So if I know them, just um, it'll help. It'll bypass a lot of that back and forth, having to you know repeat, reach out to somebody. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and look, I mean, uh, obviously, I, I, ha I have multiple articles on reform and out being part of the editorial team, uh, by definition, you know, j j uh, there are real people like Jade who know me. And of course, I now having an interview with 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 you ch totally changes things. I mean, obviously, there's there's a there's a big credibility gap that that is that is now not there because I've done this with and I appreciate that. There was a, a fellow that I was a colleague with, um, mm -hmm. with Counter Jihad, whose name I still to this day don't know. And it was just one of those things where you don't really care because there's just so many people and there's so many moving parts and you're not working closely. So you let it go. You know, it's not, uh, you know, he's not a Muslim and you know, he's just using that, uh, ethnic name as an alias. Um, that sounded like a, like a scholarly, you know, like a medieval scholarly name. I can't even remember what it was called, but sure. he turned out to be such a snake in the grass because he, he stayed on working with Frank Gaffney, even though I was with counter jihad and, that team completely moved away after that project fell apart um, because of lack of funding. But this guy stayed with Counter Jihad, with uh, not Counter Jihad, with Frank Gaffney's group, which was, which was funding Counter Jihad. And so, again, he wasn't like someone I was closely working with, so I didn't care. But then it turns out that he wrote this hit piece on me, um, I don't know, like a year or so ago, uh, maybe a little bit more talking about how I'm not a real Muslim. Like, there's a long, this long, you know, article no about... No way! Yeah, and I was laughing. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. You got four people to retweet it. Good for you. Do you want to boost? Like, do you want to retweet <laughs> this for you? He was so pissed off. But oh it was... Um, they don't realize that that sort of stuff actually helps because you're, you're now attacking me and you're from a group that many Muslims hate. So, you know, bravo, but... Um, yeah, so when I saw your name, it's it's not that I thought you were him, but you know, it sort of triggers that question. Of course, yeah, there's an association. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I understand exactly. that, and that's so messed up. Oh my god! Yeah, it's just like whatever, man. It's part of the deal. All right, let's get started. Um, let's see. Right. Verse seven is Muslim pluralist. Pluralist former academic with a background in intellectual history, and the dirt reform mag. Okay, Asian medium that. Okay, let's see if I can do this without tongue twisting it. Okay. 
how do you say your name? Rusht As-Safa? Yeah, that's okay. good. Rusht As-Safa is a Muslim pluralist and a former academic with a background in intellectual history. He's now an editor at Reformer Mag, a publication on Medium that features long-form articles on current affairs, social issues, and policy. Thank you, Rusht. It's a pleasure to be with you, Shireen. I am really excited to talk to you because I just wrapped up an interview with you and now I get to put you in the hot seat and ask you a couple of questions. The first I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The first one being is I'm really fascinated by your background. You know, you're, you're part Indonesian, you're part something else, um, and you wrote a little bit about how you grew up and you had this very mystical element to it. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, yes, so uh, I am half Indonesian from my mother's side. My father is American, although he's also of mixed ethnicity. Uh, our ancestry DNA test turned out to totally upend what we thought we were. Uh, so I am, of course, mostly Asian, a little bit of Polynesian, uh, Italian, Greek, uh, uh, British, uh, Norse, Scottish. Uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, uh, but in any case, uh, uh, I'm very proud of my mixed heritage. Um, uh, I am only American in citizenship, though. Uh, I was born in Jakarta, but w have only ever been American uh, because uh, Indonesia doesn't actually allow uh, dual citizenship. So uh, my parents and certainly my, even my Indonesian mother was very keen on making sure that I was uh, only American since, of course, there were a lot more benefits uh, to be uh, gained from that. Um, so in terms of my cultural background, though, uh, I, I grew I, I was raised as, as a Muslim. Um, and, you know, uh, was was taught all these sort of scriptural, basic scriptural teachings at a young age. But those stood alongside what is uh, commonly known as the Abangan tradition in the Indonesian archipelago. Uh, Abangan is one word that is often popular uh, and uh, is associated with Clifford Geertz, since it was in his anthropological work, The Religion of Java, that he uh, first popularized and spread the term Abangan. Um, uh, sometimes we also use the word kabatinan from the Arabic bakan, meaning inner, which refers to the sort of esoteric inner uh, spiritual practice that Abangan have. So on the one hand, Abangan are indeed Muslims, and, and, and most Abangan sort of resent the idea that we're just nominal, um, as scripturalists often refer to us as. Um, but alongside our Muslim practice is um, the rich cultural and social history of the Indonesian archipelago, and especially as it relates to the island of Java and surrounding areas. Um, Indonesia being an archipelago has meant that in history, uh, religion and all kinds of influences have always arrived through trade rather than through war. And so influences have always been a little softer, a little bit more syncretic, a little bit more mixed. And there's always, when it comes with, to trade, there's always a negotiation. On the one hand, the, the islands are changed, but the islands also change the people who brought the change. And that's what really, that's what Abangan is really all about. It's a layering of Indonesian uh, social and cultural history. So before Islam, Indonesia uh, uh, was uh, Buddhist, and before it was Buddhist, it was Hindu, and before it was Hindu, it was animist. And being Abangan is a layering of all these different traditions uh, brought together. Now, I, I, I can understand why some people might find this confusing. Well, how can you believe in both? How can you have, how can you be Muslim and yet have these Hindu and Buddhist influences? I think part of it is just sort of meant and the culture that, you know, these things aren't seen as, they're either not seen as being in contradiction, or even if there is clear contradiction, there is a cultural aspect of being comfortable with contradiction. Um, and that, uh, you know, if, if one is a spiritual and religious person, that that the idea of God and the universe, it, it, it cannot be reduced to a singular, a singular entity within the human imagination, because the human imagination, of course, is limited. We can imagine God, we can think of God, but we, we can't actually ever capture God. And I think that that's really at the heart of what it means to be an Abangan. 
okay, then apparently so am I and a lot of other people because it's it's a beautiful, <laughs> simple way to look at our place in the world. How did that infused identity inform your upbringing as, as a Muslim? Oh, it definitely had a big role. I mean, I mean, you know, growing up, on, on, on the one hand, I never I never considered myself to be different as a Muslim. I always identified as a Muslim. Uh, uh, the, the, the Hindu, Buddhist, animist aspects for me were culture. So in Indonesia, like, I would refer to those aspects as budaya, which would mean culture. And uh, Islam was agama, religion. And there was a clear distinction for me, despite the syncretism and the blending. Um, so on the one hand, I was always proud of who I was. Uh, I never questioned myself as being kind of somehow less or different than other Muslims. But I also, alongside that, understood that my form of Islam or my persuasion, both cultural and intellectual, was different from a lot of other Muslims and certainly different from even a lot of other Muslims in Indonesia who were of more scripturalist, more textualist uh, 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 persuasion. Um, I, I always prided myself on the on the fact that I that from both my mother and her extended family, we were always sort of easygoing folk, uh, you know, uh, being devout didn't mean being obnoxious. Being devout didn't mean imposition. It didn't mean getting in people's faces about things. You know, if you hey, if you want to go pray, okay, go pray. It's fine. You know, you want to fast, let's okay, then let's fast. Uh, but you didn't go around bothering other people about it. You didn't get in other people's faces about what they were doing uh, or not doing. And so I was definitely proud of that aspect of of, of the Indonesian Islam that 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 was mine. Um, I did understand, though, that not all Muslims were like that, both in Indonesia and elsewhere. I, 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 I even growing up uh, uh, as, as a young kid on Roosevelt Island in, in New York City, um, I, I met other Muslims who were a little more strict, who, for example, like my family didn't have to go. We, we, we didn't feel the need to go to a halal uh, shop, you know, so long as something didn't have pork. OK, fine, then it doesn't have pork and we can eat it. Um, I knew other Muslim families that did go to a halal butcher. So I, I recognize that difference, even in the most basic fashion. Uh, at an early age, um, uh, I came from a family that wasn't that none of the women in my family particularly, uh, yeah, none of the women in my immediate family uh, covered. So that so admittedly, even running into Muslims who wore hijab or otherwise, that was ironically something I actually had to get used to because that's not what I was used to. Um, and I, 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 you know, I think during those days, it's interesting because before 9-11, I feel like there, despite the minor differences here and there, the Muslim kids that I knew and the Muslim families that my family knew, um, everybody was in general a little less judgmental, a little less sort of in your face. Everybody just kind of did their own thing. Um, and ironically, and it's a little sad for me because ironically, I feel like 9-11 changed that. On the one hand, I understand Muslims became more self-conscious. I certainly felt that I was a part of it. I Even 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 with my appearance not being stereotypically Muslim, even with my, name, my real name not being stereotypically Muslim, I... I and my family encountered, uh, you know, some negative things after 9-11. Um, but encounter? I think the sad, uh, so in the immediate, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't compare it to a lot of the other terrible stuff that people have faced, but um, uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, one of our relatively good friends uh, who, who we met while, while, the, while that family was in New York City and then they moved outside to Nassau County, um, she forwarded like a really nasty, um, uh, uh, ferocious anti-Muslim email uh, around to everybody. And apparently she forgot <laughs> that she actually knew Muslims. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It was part, it was like part offensive, but also part funny. Like, what? Like, seriously, are you for real right now? Um, so so there was that aspect of it. Um, and th there were like, I forget, like two or three cases of that. Um, and then uh, later on in high school, I actually had a teacher use my religion against me. How? Um, yeah, I just, 
I, I, had cra- I had cracked like a simple joke to this other guy that was in class. And, you know, guys, we, you know, we, 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 we take digs at each other. It's no big deal. But like that moment turned into this like drama that was completely unnecessary. And the teacher like brought up Islam and like Ramadan and needing to be in a certain way during Ramadan. And it was it was just bizarre. And you could see that, there, that in that moment, I could see that I was being judged differently because mm. I was Muslim and because, oh, geez, it's Ramadan. And like you're supposed to be different or something. Um so, so that th- that was uh, that was probably the most sort of in your face thing um, uh, that happened for me. You know, again, you know, like compared to other people, but I certainly felt the effects, and was certainly even with my even with my passing appearance was certainly self conscious. Um, but yeah, I, I feel I feel as if ironically, nine eleven did a number of things to the Muslim community. It definitely made us more self conscious, and understandably so. It made us a little more concerned about okay, well then, what's what's really going on in our community? How are we projecting that outwards? I totally get that. Unfortunately, I think that the 9-11 meant that for a lot of Muslims, they felt the need to prove that they were something. And, and by proving it, they needed to be visible as mm-hmm. Muslims while they were doing it. And, and, and I get that on a basic level. But unfortunately, that, that constant worry, that constant anxiety, I, ironically, I think has made Muslims more, more chauvinistic or more standoffish in attitude. And, and that's something that made me a little sad because, I, you know, I remember in the old days, withstanding the differences that I've mentioned, you know, I used to meet meet and talk with um, Muslims, even casually, even randomly, and you know we'd have good conversations, and we'd talk about the same stuff everybody else would talk about. It wouldn't be any big deal. Um, but after 9/11, increasingly, conversation with Muslims became far more strained, far more like, "Whoa, okay, take it easy." Like, like I know there's a lot of emotion to be had here, but but like let's let's keep our heads clear. What sort of conversations did you have that were noticeably different than before? So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, I I've described it elsewhere as a sort of Jekyll and Hyde effect, and I don't mean that in terms of like I'm talking to a Muslim and they seem normal, and oh my God, suddenly they have like like uh, militant sympathies. No, it's not like that. I've never I mean I've never met a Muslim who has, who has expressed those things to me openly. Uh, thank goodness. Um, but uh, but but sort of the Jekyll and Hyde effect is is this that that at first we start talking and because of the way I look and because of my real name. Uh, they have no idea that they're talking to a fellow Muslim. So the conversation's normal. It's it's whatever. It's blasé, just like any other conversation you'd have. Um, then when they find out that I'm Muslim, and maybe it's not just that I'm Muslim, but also that I'm a Muslim man, suddenly the conversation takes a weird and, and kind of dark and negative turn. And, and, and maybe it's because I'm a Muslim man that they assume that I'm going to agree with them on certain things. And suddenly all the all the kind of backward theological talk starts coming up. And suddenly all this all this rhetoric about like sort of Muslim supremacy and Islam is the best. And like, you know, these, these other, you know, people don't know anything about anything. And, and again, it gets pretty troubling pretty quickly. And, and it, and it's really kind of turned, it's, it's either turned me off or made me far more cautious about the conversations I start with fellow Muslims or even whether I reveal that, that, that I'm also Muslim to them, because there are some days where I'm like, wow, I don't want to risk having that, that conversation. It's just, I, I just don't want to handle that today. It's funny that you mentioned that. So for people who can't see you, because I can see you right now, for the audience, yeah. Rush looks a little bit like, I would say, Dean Cain's younger brother. Like, he's got that sort of, like, <laughs> look, right? Where it's, you, you can tell you're mixed, yeah. but you can't really tell what you are. You definitely don't look traditionally Muslim, as people would imagine. So my background is I'm half Pakistani, half Afghan, and because I'm fairer skinned than most people typically as they're identified in that part of the world, I get the same thing where people don't know that I'm Muslim. But my experience has been completely different. When I, when people find out that I'm Muslim, it's more of like I'm in part of their secret club now. So it's it's very, <laughs> it's, it's like oh you're Muslim, great, you know, you, like it's it's like I'm more likable to them if they were Muslim as well. 
Um, and if they happen to be from Afghanistan as well, then I'm immediately invited over for tea and, you know, uh, oh, paired sure. up with, you know, the uncle's brother's cousin's nephew. And it's just, you know, the, the all that sort of <laughs> cultural stuff comes in. So it's interesting that yeah. you mentioned that um, it becomes more of this debate with you. Do you think it's because you're a male? Do you think it's because of the type of, I mean, what, what, what do you think, why do you think our experiences are so different? I think, I mean, I, I, I can relate to what you're saying about them getting excited and suddenly it's like, oh yeah, we're all part of the same club. And I think, and I think maybe part of them are, some of them are, are excited about the idea that somehow there's a Muslim that looks like me and I'm really Muslim and like they can then, they can sort of like claim to being like uh, related to me somehow. Um, so there is that element. I think, I think the male aspect though plays a big role here because a lot of things that are expressed are sort of backward views when it comes to mm -hmm. women. Like, oh, look at these Western women, they're walking around with these clothes and, you know, acting like this and that. And, and, and clearly they're, 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 they're saying that in sort of like a, in, 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 a, in a sort of encouraging way because they somehow expect me to agree with them or they mm. somehow expect me to be also as sort of disillusioned with either being Western or Western liberal or whatever. Um, and, and they're clearly looking for some kind of acknowledgement uh, from me. And of course, I don't give it because that's, that's not my view on things. Um, and so it's, 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 I, you know, I, I try to, I try to be a little diplomatic while also making my own point that, you know, look, first of all, we, we don't, we're not in any, no person Muslim or not is, any, is in any position to be judging anybody else. That is up to God. Um, and that is not our place. That is not our prerogative. And also, uh, you know, for me, I am Muslim. Yes. And there are certain things that come with that, but I am also an American. I, I make it clear I'm, I'm, I'm an American. I've always been an American. That's, that's my only national identity, despite the fact that I'm very proud of my Indonesian heritage. Um, and I, I continue to be an American and to be proud to be an American, withstanding its uh, flaws just like any other country. Um, because look at the benefits we're able to reap as people, me, you, everyone else. Look at the kind of society we're able to have here. Uh, that is not true, I'm saddened to say, for a lot of Muslim-majority countries. And, and if Islam is so great and if our understanding of Islam is so great, then then why are things so troubled in the Muslim in the Muslim majority world, and why are things so troubled uh, among Muslims? And and I, I try to make the argument. Sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. But I try to make the argument, as I do to all people, that that you know, put aside substance. Religion always has troubling substance. But think about process. Why why is it that the West, uh, withstanding its own uh, uh, disasters, anthropomorphic, uh, anthropogenic disasters, uh, withstanding all of that. Um, why, why is it that the West has always been able to move forward in a pluralistic, relatively pluralistic fashion and the Muslim world hasn't? Mm -hmm. um, and depending on how they respond, then I can take that conversation deeper or, or, or the conversation just kind of ends awkwardly or it's just kind of stunted. Uh, but, but I try to make those points because also I, I, I am very, in general, I'm very troubled by by a lot of Muslim attitudes when it comes to the West, uh, you know, oh, the West is this and the West is that, and you know, we, you know they don't care about us, and and a, you know, Western society is corrupt, and 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 et cetera, et cetera, and it's like, okay, but you are here, and, and actually, yeah. you know, depending on who you are, and if I know something about them, it's like you actually have a pretty decent life. So, what exactly are you upset about? What exactly is is bothering you? Yeah, okay, the United States, let's say, the United States, for example, has made a lot of colossal errors. A lot of them have have to do with the Muslim majority world. Um, but at the same time, how do you process that? How do you how do you then deal with the fact that you are here reaping the benefits of being here? And so I try to sort of turn it on them to say, like, well, is this really just self-loathing on your part? Is this really about Islam and the West or Islam versus the West? Or are you just are you just having problems dealing with this on your own terms? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that I haven't had moments, too, where I've questioned things, but 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 I don't. 
in whether it's on this issue or anything else, I don't like to turn my own my own doubts, my own grievances, etc., into a policy platform. That's mm. just not my stuff. I love that you bring that up. I love that you in essence, offer a guide on how to have this conversation and how to even know if you should have this conversation with the Muslim you meet because sometimes it's just not worth it. Um, yeah. Ask, Yeah, exactly. Ask them the question on where they stand on, on some of these issues and see how they lead with that. What, what I find in hindsight, if I take your advice and apply it, is there's a lot of conversations I should have probably avoided and it would have saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> Yeah, probably. I'm sure. <laughs> exactly, and and what I also find now is, um, is people will recognize the last name and they'll come up to me and they'll just initiate that conversation, which is even better because I'd rather see where they want to lead with it. Um, and and you bring up the point that the grievances that folks have. One of the things I was really fascinated by is is the amount of folks that. Um, you know, don't particularly. Of course, they're American Muslims. They, they love being American. They they've held on to their culture. They don't particularly care about A, B, or C. Uh, they may agree on this issue. I mean, the, the the full spectrum of what a person's opinion can be, but they've really fallen sort of down the line one way or the other when it comes to this key question that you asked, which is, you know, why? How do you feel about someone who's complaining about America? Because I've had so many immigrant conversations where it'll be exactly that, one thing or the other. They may hate Trump, they may love Trump, they may uh, sympathize with terrorists, they may hate terrorists, but and that may be all over all over the sort of field, but when it comes to why are you here, do you are you are you, you know, grieved in some way or are you kind of just getting on with it, they fall down one way or the other. And it's either, you know, America's um, America's a problem, or if or if it is a problem, like why don't you just go back home? And that's and that's really a maybe an important litmus test, just mm -hmm. for us as Muslims to help us navigate how to have these conversations. And that's really really clever. My question for you is: You went into academia, so mm -hmm. you're a sadist essentially for for choosing to yes. take your very yes we 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 have we always we always walk the line between sadism and masochism. We like to have both exactly. <laughs> How did you how did you end up there? So when you have this very um yeah. you know open identity and and how did you arrive at a point where you said okay, I'm going to take this very broad uh you know very very sort of liberated identity and go into academia and you studied Islamic theology? What was that it? What did you study? And how did you get there? Yeah, so yeah, so so my background, my academic background was interdisciplinary. Uh, I, you know, for undergrad, uh, I did a global studies major. My uh, dual master's program was international and world history, um, and then I had briefly entered a, a PhD program uh, for uh, Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. Um, you know, the thing is, uh, like I said, I've always been proud of my Abangan background. Um, I love Abangan people, but um, I realized by the time I was sort of in high school, I think um, I realized that. Um, you know, my, my own curiosities about Islamic intellectual history and the nuances of Islamic social development could never be grounded in, 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 the, in the Abangan way of thinking, both because we Abangan are such a, are such a, are, are of such a mixed persuasion, but also being Abangan is, is very amorphous. There's no, there's no rational framework to being Abangan. There's no book that says, oh yeah, here, here's what it means to be an Abangan, and this is what you do as an Abangan. Um, and so I realized if I really want to get into the nitty gritty of Islam, there needs to be a rational framework. Um, there needs to be a, pro a formal process. And 
then I realized looking into this, well, wait a minute, this isn't just me. This is actually all religious development. Most religious histories are movements towards textualism. Uh, you return to the text that. not to necessarily, yeah, yeah, not to necessarily go backward. In fact, you return to the text to to, to take a leap, as Clifford Geertz uh, has, has has written in the past. You go you go backwards in order better to leap. Um, and so I realized, well, wait a minute, is is there another tradition I can look to uh, for inspiration, for guidance uh, in this? And and in my own uh, research and 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 uh, examinations, I realized, wow, I'm really identifying and I'm really inspired by what's known historiographically as the renewal of Islamic thought in Indonesia. Uh, the renewal was a movement of uh, scripturalist Muslims uh, known as Santri, who are, of course, a different group from the Abana. Um And the renewalists were focused on depoliticizing Indonesian, Indonesian, Indonesian scripturalist Islam and creating a more healthy role for Islam in society that would be more kind of cultural civic. Um, and 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 be free from or, or as free as possible from politics. And on the one hand, their their mission was both universal and and national. Universal in the sense that they they wanted their project to uh, hopefully apply to potentially all Muslims anywhere uh, to be a universal thing, but also contextual and national because they were responding to some very troubling circumstances in Indonesian history. Uh, Indonesia went through some very tr- uh, troubled times. In the 1950s and 60s, under the first president Sukarno, it was a chaotic time. Um, modernist Islamists uh, tried to agitate for an Islamic state. Indonesia isn't an Islamic state, and officially, at least, still is not. They were trying to agitate for an Islamic state. There were also intrigues involving the Indonesian Communist Party. So, the 1950s and 60s saw um, uh, parliamentary gridlock, uh, communal violence, uh, the banning of the uh, the eventual banning of the modern, main modernist Islamist party, Mashumi and eventually the violent purge of the Indonesian Communist Party, um, and also a, a lot of people that weren't even communists, but were maybe caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, or were simply a victim of score settling in the middle of all the hysteria. So the renewalists were looking at all this in the late 60s, early 70s, and they said to themselves, wow, this was a disaster, and we can't let this happen again. Our, no country, and especially our own, can't. We can't experience this again. And we also have to own up to the fact that Islam had a role in this. The politicization of Islam had a role in all of this. And we as Santri, as scripturalists, whether we were directly or indirectly involved, it doesn't matter. We, we, we have an opportunity to fix this now. We have to fix it. We have to deal with it. And that means going back to the text, going back, rethinking tradition altogether and saying, how do we, how do we open up? intellectualize and pluralize Islam in the same way that Western traditions uh, like Western Christianity have done so through their own history and through their own intellectual processes. And so I looked at the renewal and I thought to myself, you know, wow, these these individuals in this movement represents the same ideals that I do as an Abanga, but but their their approach and their vision is far more relevant for the future. Um, uh, You know, being Abanga will always remain local and particularistic to Indonesia, to Java and the surrounding areas. But this renewalist approach is potentially universal and and and, and uh, is good for Indonesia and is good for the Muslim world more broadly. So I made it sort of my my mission, my passion to become a scholar of the renewal to help kind of promote the renewal through my own work. At least that's how I imagined it um, as a scholar eventually, uh, as a professor, and so on, um, because this deserves to be seen. And and what's interesting about the renewal is that, and for, for me, it's so interesting being touched by this both as somebody who has Indonesian heritage. And as an American, that the renewal, was, its development was incre- was uh, essentially helped by Western scholars. Most of the renewalists ended up at either University of Chicago or McGill University. And during that generation, uh, those departments were intentionally trying to reach out to 
Muslim pluralists and Muslim reformers looking to uh, uh, open up their own faith, but they simply didn't have the intellectual tools to do it yet. And these departments at these two, principally these two universities, um, intentionally targeted these students and brought them over, gave them the tools, sent them back. And that's that's how the renewal got started. Two questions. What intellectual tools? What does that look like? And would you say renewal is the same as reform? Mm, that's a good question. So uh, I would, to address the second thing first, I would say that renewal is not necessarily uh, reform in the way that reform is sort of popularly uh, uh, imagined. Uh, uh, not all the not all the renewalists, uh, uh, for for example, necessarily adopted the idea that the Quran is created versus uncreated. Mm. So it's not as if the, they were pushing them all to the same resolution. But uh, the key about the, 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 so reform is, reform is sort of part of the process, but it's not necessarily leading to anything liberal in the Western sense. And I think that is an important distinction to make, uh, because even today, uh, both, both the Renewals Project and even today, uh, the more progressive elements in Indonesia are not liberal in the Western sense. They're pluralistic in sort of an Eastern communal Asian sense with a little bit of kind of Islamic inspiration thrown in. Um, uh, uh, smaller elements are truly liberal in the Western sense, but 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 not all. Um, the key, though, for the renewal was to simply say that we need to have an open debate. It doesn't mean we're going to reach the same conclusion. Conclusions. It doesn't mean we're going to even end up with with like a common platform per se. But we need to have an open debate and recognize that that also we don't we don't have to dilute Islam. This isn't about weakening Islam. This isn't about being more secular in the way that a lot of Westerners or especially let's say a lot of French people in the sort of hard lay cité way think of secularism. No, this isn't about that kind of secularism, but it is about a, a degree of secularization in the sense that we can look at religion, we can look at tradition, we can look at text and we can critique it. It doesn't mean that we're blaspheming. It doesn't mean that that we're, we're devaluing Islam or devaluing God or religion in our in, in uh, the, the role that religion plays in our lives, but we're altering the way we see devotion. We're altering the way we see religion playing a role in our lives. And and granted, in the middle of all that, you know, they they they, they did want to keep things as open as possible, but in the middle of all that was, as I mentioned, a depoliticization. They 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 were whatever else they agreed or disagreed upon. They were almost universal on the idea that uh, that. Religion cannot be politicized because when it is, it's always a dangerous thing, and it always ends up in a really bad place, and it's and it's and it's put Muslims in a really bad place over and over. So their key was to say that no, let's keep Islam and let's keep religion important in Indonesian public life, but let's just change what that means by using these intellectual tools. And on the most, of course, some of this gets a little bit more complicated, but on a most basic level for listeners, I would emphasize that these tools are are, are about. Uh, comparative religion, comparative texts, uh, philosophical analysis, not being, afra- uh, not being afraid to sort of break out of one's bubble and bring in different disciplines to understand what religion means in the context of history. Uh, let's say, for example, why, you know, uh, this is a very simple exegetical exercise, but it's very instructive. Why do Muslims believe that Jesus was not crucified and in fact was replaced by someone else who was? Well, uh, uh, at first look, that that seems like a really disingenuous point. Like, wow, Muslims are totally trying to like negate everything Christianity is about. That's not actually what Muslims were trying to do. At least, well, I, well, I don't know what people's intents are now, but originally speaking, uh, that wasn't the intent. Uh, in fact, the irony is that Muslims believe that Jesus wasn't crucified because of the very Christians they interacted with in seventh century Arabia. Most of the Christians that Muslims interacted with in the early days were heterodox monophysites. 
And heterodox monophysites believe that Jesus was not crucified, which is why Muslims also believe that. Now, uh, this is not about going through down the list and saying, oh, this is all wrong and this is all right. This is just simply a fluid process that understands that religion, uh, even if you believe in God, even if you believe in divine revelation, that religion is also equally a product of history and social processes and a product of, of, of interactions that sometimes you have to kind of stop and go go deep into history to find. Um, and and so going back to the renewalists, it, it was all about accepting the fact that we can believe in God. We don't have to consider ourselves less devout, but that doesn't mean we don't we don't question. That doesn't mean we can't we can't uh, compare and analyze texts together. And that had an important. I mean, th- that was important on a philosophical basis, but it also had really uh, essential institutional uh, aspects because the renewalists they went back. They entered they entered different positions in, in government in, in government. Uh, uh, you know, academia, civil society. Um, but one of their key measures was to uh, influence the, the, the new development of the Ministry of Religious Affairs, to depoliticize the ministry and focus uh, an agenda on interfaith efforts, on building a civic interaction and civic solidarity between religious leaders and religious laities. And uh, under the Ministry of Religious Affairs was also the state Islamic institutes. And the longtime rector of the state Islamic institutes uh, was a man named Harun Nasution, and both he and the minister at that time, Mukti Ali, uh, attended McGill University. And so they came back; they came together in the ministry, uh, Ali at the ministry, and then under him, uh, Nasution at the state Islamic institutes. And they put together a comparative religion curriculum, which still exists today in the state Islamic institutes. And it, this curriculum, if you go down the syllabus, th- th- there is nothing different than anything you find in a Western religious studies, uh, university department. Um, you know, you go to the, uh, state Islamic institutes today and you see, you know, you walk in and you see Muslim students reading the Quran, uh, alongside Weber and Nietzsche. And, and, you know, that's, that's nothing unusual for Indonesia, nothing unusual for the renewalists certainly. Be, um, but, but, you know, what's funny is seeing the reactions on like visiting professors who are coming from Jordan, from Morocco, or, you know, who knows where else. And they're walking in, they're seeing these Muslim students reading these texts together and they're going, what the hell is going on here? Um, it's a really unique thing that has no equivalent in, in any other major Islamic uh, uh, educational institute. I agree with you that multidisciplinary approaches is really key. Would you, and I want to backstep because I really, I really want to point out what mm-hmm. you said, which is beautiful. And just for the listeners to make sure they're grasping this is you mentioned religion mm-hmm. is a process of interaction, which is something, yeah. obviously it's true, but I've never really heard someone explain it so simply before because it really it really carries forward a lot of what we're dealing with you know why did this happen why did that happen it's because of the different dynamics and points of engagement looking at renewal now a lot of people would say well everything you're describing about renewal sounds like reform i'm confused isn't renewal reform? i mean that's that's because it sounds very similar so what would you say to that yeah so this is a complicated matter, and also because the the renewal in Indonesia took on a variety of forms, and it also ended up including. I mean, the renewalists were modernists, and for and for those listeners unfamiliar, modernist. If you're a modernist within Islam, it means you don't come from the traditional ulama, or you weren't brought up in traditional Islamic education. Essentially, you are a worldly person, and modernism it, it rests on the idea of returning to the foundational texts in order to bypass. The classical scholars, and 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 when you re- when you return to the text, you also use uh, uh, ishtihad, either in depending on who you're talking to, either in freewheeling or a limited fashion, um, to in, to come up with new interpretations 
um, uh, for what you're looking at. Now, the thing is that something that's really important for people to understand about, about these intellectual structures in Islam is that it's easy to think of, okay, so modernism and traditionalism. So traditionalists are conservative and modernists are like progressive or liberal or kind of open or moderate. And the funny thing is that Islam, in Islam, they're, they're, the left-right divide doesn't work very well. And, and often these terms are counterintuitive. You can have someone who is a modernist because structurally they, they want to bypass the ulama, they want to go back to the original text, and yet they can be a modernist Salafist. They're, that in Islam, that is that isn't hypocritical, um, that isn't that isn't contradictory, um, and and so the key for the renewals beyond just Islam, they also wanted to fix modernism. They saw that Islamic modernism was doing the right thing by bypassing the, the classical ulama, but that it was becoming puritanical in its return to the text. That in many ways they were fetishizing the texts even more than traditionalists would fetishize the ulama, and they wanted to fix that. That if we're going to return to the text, then we can't treat we can't treat textual purity ipso facto as equivalent to modernity, right? Because as Clifford, I always go back to Geertz because he he has a great phrase on this. That that what happened with Islamic modernism is that you go back to the text, and you and because you've gone back to the text. Uh, you, you 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 then use the text to, to justify Islam. Uh, you justify modernity using Islam, but you actually haven't made Islam modern, and that's what the renewals want to do. That if we're going to be modernists, we got to make this real, uh, and that has to come with process. That has to come with a long term, multi generational enlightenment, as was true of 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 the West. And again, this in general, yes, the the, the progress, so to speak, intellectual and social, you could say, is liberal or is pluralizing, and, and it, it opens things up. But of course, it's uneven. Not not all enlightenment developments in the West were liberal per se. Some of them were actually quite illiberal. Um, and, and sometimes you actually achieve liberal progress through illiberal leaders like Napoleon. So it's not like Western development has been uh, even uh, or, or moved in a straight line either. And then the renewalists were willing to accept that you would have those same issues and that same unevenness, that same ebb and flow within Islam. And that's okay. I mean, not, not every, not every, not every uh, ebb, uh, shift between ebb and flow would be a, a bad thing per se. You just needed to account for it. And you needed to make sure that you didn't stop at any point, that the process was ongoing and that nobody uh, finished this by saying, well, yeah, I have the answer and here's the answer and that's it. We're done. Um, uh, that's the main problem that they identified in Islam, that people, both traditionalists and modernists in their own, in their own way, were always too sure of themselves. And were always happy to settle for the quickest or easiest answer when, in fact, they needed to pursue the hard answers and keep going. So that sounds like reform, with the exception. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I mean, I'm sort of <laughs> dancing around it. It, 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 is, it, 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 is, it is reform. It is uh Somewhat liberalizing and 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 pluralizing, but they did. Uh, I mean, per our previous conversation too, they did want to keep uh, an open mind and also reach out beyond just the modernist camp. I mean, eventually the, the the renewal, even though it was a modernist phenomenon to start, it did end up including several prominent traditionalist figures. Uh, most famously, uh, Abdurrahman Wahid, who was the head of Nadlatul Ulama and eventually became Indonesian president. Uh, Wahid w- w- was from the traditionalist camp. He came from a, a family of classical. Uh, Ulama. He was traditionally educated in Cairo and, and Baghdad, but he ended up sort of becoming part of the renewal, uh, both accidentally and intentionally, um, and adapting the renewal, uh, doing his best to adapt the renewal uh, within the traditionalist framework. Now, some can assess that to what extent he was successful or, 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 or failed at that, but, but, but the renewal ended up taking on multiple dimensions that were beyond just the original kind of pluralizing modernist uh, intent. What I'm hearing you say, because I'm thinking from the perspective of someone who barely understands reform and now is introduced to this 
flood of information, brilliant information, by the way, on what renewal is. But so if I, as a reformer, would have to take away from what you're saying, what I would say is that uh, renewal actually goes beyond reform, because what I find with reform is, uh, first, again, all reformers are very unique, but what I do find with reform is that there seems to be, or whether it is pushed by outside sources, there seems to be this desire at a conclusion or this illusion that we can come at a conclusion for what Islam is. Personally, I don't agree with that. I don't agree we're going to get to that. I think it's um, optimistic to think, and I don't think, and I think it actually goes against the grain of human nature is to just arrive at a conclusion and be done with it. I think it is an ongoing oh, sure, conversation. Yeah. So that that I would yeah. say, okay, renewal is this ongoing conversation, but reform is this sort of um, punctuated solution for the time. Yes, and and, and actually, I, then, then I actually sometimes sometimes, sometimes I, I need to sort of return to sort of the, the sort of the, especially the context and the foundation for why this began. That before you get to the reform part, or like okay, well then, what theological tools are we going to do? And like then, okay, do we need to go to the West? And what does this mean for Indonesia? What does this mean for Islam? At its most basic level, if there's one word that I would use to describe the renewal and how it may be different from 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 reform is that on the most basic level, it's responsibility. Mm. Uh, the renewalists were Muslims who wanted to take responsibility for themselves, for Islam, for other Muslims, uh, and, and not just when things went right, but also when they went wrong. The, the heart of the renewal was all about responsibility for, oh my God, this went really wrong and, and, and we can't, and, and we have to own it and we have to find a way to make sure it doesn't happen again. Mm, that makes sense. You, well, before we get to your academic background again, I, I want to ask you, do you think the, the path forward is renewal or reform? Oh, because the, right now, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I, I, you know, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I, I think, I think renewal is where it starts. If, if renewal is responsibility, renewal has to be where it starts. And let me, let me clarify here because I, I'm sure that a lot of people, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, may be listening to this and think, well, wait a minute, responsibility, but like, how can you blame all Muslims for what some people do? That's not what I'm saying. Forget about blame, forget about fault or, or these other words that kind of imply uh, that, that collectively everybody has to feel bad about the same things and with the same intensity. It's not about that. I, I think whether it's Muslims or other people, there, there is value in recognizing uh, what communities ones are a part of and what those communities are doing. It doesn't mean that that, that, that that you have it in your power to stop what people are doing or get people to do something that they're not doing. No, it's not about that. But but it's okay to acknowledge without blame, without fault, uh, uh, to acknowledge that, okay, if you're part of a community, what does it mean to then recognize when that community does something right, but also when it does something wrong? And that and that uh, can we in our own ways, I mean, not everybody, right, has to become a renewalist, not everybody has to become a reformer, but even unless they casual conversations, right, what 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 do Muslims say to other Muslims when when a when a tough issue comes up? Do they do they make apologies? Do they do they engage in in a broad apologetics that, oh, it's nothing to do with Islam, nothing to do with Muslims moving on. We don't have to talk about this and it's not important. You know, or do they take a moment and say, well, wait a minute, maybe we should spend another minute on this and really think about what's going on. You know, for me, it's like that. in that moment, that person needs, doesn't need to be an academic. They don't need to be in politics or, or civil society. In that moment, that person is a renewalist to me. Mm. Um, and, and it's those small moments that, that, that can add up over time in a way, in a way that, that is hard to see um, uh, in, in, in the temporary moment. Um, and I think that... You know, when it when it, so so going back to your original question, it, it has to start with renewal because renewal is responsibility. 
And yes, ideally from responsibility, I, I do think that Muslim reform is, is absolutely essential at this moment. And 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 not just in there's there's the internal part that is about Islam and Muslims that I feel that on its own terms reform is important, but also reform at this point is important because of externalities. Um, you know, you look at the bigger picture, regardless of your individual persuasion, um, wherever Muslims are now, especially if we're Muslim minorities in the West, decisions are being made for us. And I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh my God, these terrible Western non-Muslim people, how dare they make these? No, no, I, I get it. I get it because there's enough going wrong among Muslims and within Islam that it has forced global, unique global securitizations, unique global diplomacies in a way that is incomparable to any other type of kind of global communal response. I mean, look, lots of, Lots of countries have been colonized. Muslims always point to colonialism as being the thing, being the cause. And I'm not saying that colonialism and, and intervention and all this stuff isn't important. It is. But at the same time, there have been a lot of countries that have been messed with. There have been a lot of ethno-national and religious groups that have been messed with. But their responses are nowhere near on the level that of the responses and the intensity of the responses and the militancy of the responses on a global level. That have been true of Muslims and Islam, and I, I don't say that easily. That's not that's not a pleasant thing to have to admit, but I have to recognize it. I have to recognize it because other people, other non-Muslims, are recognizing it. And guess what, folks? They're reacting. They're reacting, and they they're they're starting to make decisions without us. And um, you know, I, I I admit it. Maybe I speak from a place of, of of privilege. Maybe a lot of this won't have to affect me because of, because of how I look and who I am and how I sound or whatever and my real name. Uh, but it's going to affect a whole lot of other people. And, 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 and you know, my, my, my big issue with both Muslims and mainstream non-Muslims who want to act like the problem isn't there is that you're, you're creating a void. And that void is being filled by some very nasty forces, right? Illiberal forces, nativist forces, uh, reactionary forces uh, that are, are, they're the ones stepping up to deal with the threat because mainstream forces are acting like it's not there. And that's not good either. We're, we're, we're fighting one chauvinism with another. And it's not, it's not, we're not in a good place, folks. And Muslims, Muslims, uh, both Muslims and, and, and mainstream non-Muslims in the West, we, we need to get real about this problem because if we don't, we're going to lose uh, uh, everything. And we're going to be caught between two illiberalisms, two chauvinisms, which will absolutely uh, uh, warp what our societies are. I feel like we're already there, just politically speaking, with what we're dealing with in the last couple of years as, as, a, as a country. Oh, yeah. sure, sure. And, 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 and look, if you look at, I mean, it's, it's uh, in various ways in different writings, I, I, I pose this kind of nightmarish reality, like, hey, we need to get on top of this, all of us, Muslim, non-Muslim, when you get on top of this because it's coming. Well, I mean, now it's almost, it's almost a little uh, uh, quaint to be saying it's coming. It's already here. If you look at what's happening in Denmark now, mm -hmm. uh, uh, look, I'm all for creating, I'm actually very much for, we can save this for another conversation because it's, it's, it's a long enough issue on its own, but I'm very much for creating national civic programs to deal with Islamist ideology that apply universally to all citizens. It's not about targeting Muslims in particular. I'm actually for that, but but these, but I'm, I'm in favor of programs that, that, emphasize, that emphasize education uh, rather than some kind of you know ethnic confrontation that that borders on on apartheid, and that's what ha that's what's happening in Denmark now, and that's and it's very disturbing. And here's the thing: what Muslims need to keep in mind, especially uh, those in Western Europe, those in North America. It's convenient to still see this as some kind of left versus right thing. Like, oh yeah, the left is still like 
the left just still cares about us and like we're safe with the left and oh the right's just turning crazy and irrational and it, it, again it's very quaint to see it that way but that's not what is happening in fact left and right in their own way are are banding together against what they see as as an islamic threat and and, and on the one hand their concerns are not unjustified but their approaches are wrong in denmark it may be the rightist coalition dominated now by the right wing Danish People's Party that is controlling the parliament, but the Social Democrats have joined in on on all of these proposals. This this is this is a consensus issue. It's not left versus right, and that is going to be coming to a lot more countries. So so again, Muslims, mainstream non-Muslims, you, you know, you, you you better wake up and start talking about the issues so that we can we can deal with with the problem in a sensible way before before everybody starts uh, finding extreme solutions appealing. Yeah, very very wisely put. Is what you're doing with your work, which I want to get into in a second, and with your academic background, is that part of the solution? And I, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, your academic background, which we did, but I want to talk about why you left yeah. academia. And then right. we'll launch into you know the, the work you're doing right now with Reformer, as well as your series. So let's start with why you left academia. Okay, so... Um Throughout my time in the academy, I mean, really, since, ever since undergrad, carrying through to my master's, and then the one semester that I spent in a PhD program, I had noticed that, and again, this is part of what I was talking about earlier about sort of post 9-11 shift, I noticed that as things get worse among Muslims and within Islam, uh, Muslims and defenders of Muslims, for example, uh, uh, non-Muslim academics who study the Middle East or study Islam, everyone is getting so much more defensive of the problems because the problems are actually getting worse and because they're actually getting harder to avoid. So the more the problems are prominent, the more they're avoiding them and the more they want to sort of shoot down or be dismissive of those who bring them up. And so throughout my academic career, again, even ever since undergrad, I noticed that both uh, fellow students and scholars, whether Muslim or not, but if they're sort of vested in the study of the Middle East and Islam, that uh, they become increasingly defensive uh, dismissive, downright hostile to me whenever I would bring up, just very casually, right? We, we would be sitting, let's say, in, that, in, in, in a little academic gathering, presentation is made, then Q&A or roundtable discussion. And I would bring up the issue because everyone wants to, in many ways, militancy, it's sort of weird to say it like this, but militancy has in many ways become its own kind of fetish, its own kind of safe space for scholars of Islam mm. and for Muslims, because it's like, oh, yeah, look, those militants, if you look at the numbers, yeah, most, most Muslims are militants, most Muslims will never become terrorists. Well, that's true. And yeah, thank God that that's the case. But uh, let's not feel too good about the, 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 the militant problem being so limited or being so isolated um, or, 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 be, or with the fact that we can demarcate that from everything else. When, in fact, the bigger problem is not the militancy. The bigger problem is the civil political chauvinism. The bigger problem is the intellectual and social stagnation among Muslims and within Islam. And whenever I try to bring up that dimension of it, um, along with the fact that, you know, a lot of stuff in Muslim discourse now involves conspiracy theory, et cetera, et cetera, all the really unpleasant things. Whenever I try to bring up any point or points from 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 those categories, uh, I would have just sort of immediately be shot down. Or there'd be just this, you could see like the, the tone of the room would totally change, very hostile, very dismissive. So it, none of this was terribly new for me, but I thought I could navigate around it. Uh, so long as I could find a relatively supportive department, a supportive uh, advisor, mentor, um, and because, I, I, you know, what, what, what pushed me onward privately was that sometimes after these events, often after these events, people would come up to me and say, you know, like, I'm sorry about what just happened, but I want you to know I really I'm grateful for you to bring for bringing that stuff up. And I appreciate you speaking out. 
And here's the thing. None of these people were unreasonable, like right wing nativists. They, uh, uh, most of them were actually liberals and progressives. And, and they were just afraid of, of, of raising the issue or seeming intolerant or seeming bigoted or just getting, you know, mass attack like I did. Um, but they always came up to me and said, thank you so much. So I, I said to myself, yeah, there's people who are concerned about this. And I feel like I have to keep going for those folks, especially because I'm grateful for their appreciation being expressed. Um, and. You know, look, on a personal side, too, uh, you know, the renewalists were in many ways my sort of intellectual fathers on this. And and I admired them deeply, both as an academic, as a Muslim, as a person. Um, and, you know, like I said, they got involved in different capacities when they returned to Indonesia after getting their degrees. But at their heart, they were academics. They were scholars. They were teachers. And I, and I, I did want to be like them, uh, I guess you could say, Um and so I continue on despite the problems. Uh, I took a break from academia after my double master's program. Uh, I wanted to sort of explore departments, continue to get a gauge on what was sort of going on within the field. I eventually met a man who I thought would would be a great advisor, surprise, surprise, because I it was another one of those moments where I raised these issues in seminar. And instead of a hostile dismissive response, he also responded and said, oh, yeah, wow, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. And I've also wondered what's causing all of this to happen. Um, and, you know, that was such a novel response for me because that's just not what I was used to. So eventually I ended up applying uh, for his department, joining that department. Um, and, and you know, the first thing he said to me affirmed why when we got together for, for lunch before the academic year that it affirmed to me why I wanted to work with him, which is that, you know, he said, where can we even send students anymore? You know, so much is falling apart. Mm-hmm. And like that's the kind of visceral stuff that I wanted to hear from, from scholars and other students within the field. So I was really very happy about all of it at the start. Then it was just soul crushing to then start that first semester and realize that, well, wait a minute, like this, we're, we're in our core class, problems and methods in Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. And like, okay, one, you know, one third of the semester is done. We're halfway. Okay. Three quarters. Like, where's the discussion on Islamism? Are we, are we really going to go this entire semester in a problems and methods class, emphasis on problems? without discussing this issue while all this uh, chaos is is reigning around us and across the globe. What other And so I Sorry, what other problems Yeah, no, sorry, no, being, no go, ahead, go ahead. What other problems were being discussed? So what was being discussed in lieu of Islamism? So we were looking at, at at the basics of like okay, so sort of problems of historical research and historical methods and let's say uh, uh, when we let's say we examine the issue of Islamic law, like what are what have been different method, methodological approaches to Islamic law? What, you know, what do we mean when we talk about Islamic law? Uh, uh, religious readings on the Quran, uh, case studies when it came to sort of like how to approach research differently if, if you're dealing with a certain type of structural problem if you're looking at research in, and let's say a country like Turkey versus a country like Yemen. Uh, uh, a, a different kind of historiographical works, a lot on methods. Again, seemed, the, the emphasis seemed to be more on methods rather than actual problems per se. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're going to have a class on problems, then how could you miss the biggest one of all? Um, and here's the thing, it was already bad enough when I thought that this was the error of my individual advisor who happened to be teaching the class that semester. But towards the end, I found out from another senior professor in the department that apparently they had gotten together, the faculty had gotten together and made a collective decision uh, to not talk about Islamism at all, because and because apparently uh, they they didn't want to get into this is I think part of the bigger campus PC problem. Now, for the record, I think this this problem is actually very uneven throughout the country. Some campuses, some departments apparently don't have this issue at all. At others, it's completely shattering debate um, and and therefore destroying good good uh, good scholarship. And what and school were you in? Practice. 
Uh, oh, so this was this was the Middle East. Yeah, this was the Department of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University. Okay. Um, and again, I think this is where some of the campus the campus PC problem, as is often described in the blogosphere, gets really extreme. So it's like Islamism is so bad, and 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 because it does tie into Islam and Muslim identity and history and social development, that okay, well, it's better better off we just don't talk about it because then we won't offend anybody or we won't have to get into difficult conversations or or you know we won't have like a I don't know a student I don't know if they're imagining like some kind of student revolt against it or something. Um, I mean, it's uh, no matter what they're imagining or not imagining, it's ridiculous. And your your tenured faculty members, you have all the power you want in yeah. this in this realm. Uh, you you are supposed to act not just as as advisors but shepherds uh, uh, in this field. And 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 you know and and look, there's there's the there's the civic and academic uh, um, dereliction of duty, but also you're gonna you're about to send students into parts of the world that are very troubled and you're sending them there without any understanding of Islamism. How irresponsible can you be? It's unbelievable. Did you raise your concerns? What was your, I mean, obviously you left, but what was your process before you left? So there was a little bit of a gap between what I explained or what I disclosed to the faculty at the time versus my sort of whole set of reasons. I I left for I mean that was the, that was the that was sort of the final straw for me. But there were a number of other issues as well. Uh, I, I realized that okay, look, even if even if I could somehow get past what is going on in this department and continue for the sake of continuing, because look, getting into PhDs are hard enough as is. Like it's it's hard to throw that opportunity away. But, but then I thought to myself, okay, so I go through this for the next, I don't know, what, six, seven years, however long it takes. Uh, and, and then what? What's, what's an academic career going to look like with my attitude if things are only going to get worse? <laughs> and also, like, a lot of these, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Because also, like, a lot of these, also, a lot of these nuttier types that are, that are in my generation that are now scholars and eventually going to be my colleagues, like, in theory, they're going to be ones that are going to consider hiring me. How the hell am I going to deal with any of this? They're not going to want me. I'm going to, I'm going to be a pariah. So, between that and also some negative shifts that 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 had been occurring in Indonesia, uh, some overt, sort of in the news, others um, not so apparent, but that I learned about through through my own sources in Indonesia. Um, also, the uh, this was the same semester. It was that that was that same. The semester ended, and then when the New Year's New Year's Eve came, that's when all the women were 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 sexually assaulted uh, in Germany, you know, across Europe uh, during that New Year's Eve. Um, uh, and and all of this came together at the same time, and I just I felt sick to my stomach. I felt nauseous. I I, I felt totally depleted, totally disillusioned. Uh, at, at sure, angry as well. I admit. Um, and, and I thought that I just want to get away from all of this. I want to get away from all of it as far as possible right now. Um, and so I didn't actually raise the issue of Islamism with them when I when I told them that I was going to leave. Um, Looking back on it, I just felt like it was a waste of time and 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 spending more time than I needed to to talk with them or email them or whatever. I, it, it, it meant less time feeling absolutely uh, nauseous and sick to my stomach. So I just wanted out of it as quickly as possible. But of course now it's 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 fine and it's easy for me to be able to talk about it uh, now that there's a lot of distance. But that's the thing, you know. I left I left academia and I really didn't I didn't touch any of these issues uh, for. Uh, probably at least like a year and a half, between a year and a half and two years before I really started thinking about them again. And I came up with sort of this new identity, this this pen name and this new persona to sort of share my views online, share my views with 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 other people. But you know, it was a hard decision. It was devastating. I, I always wanted to be an academic because of the renewalist, because of my own interests and the feeling that yeah, okay, I think I'm pretty good at this. So well, why not stick with it? Why not try to make it work? 
Um, and it's hard, it was hard to let that go. And also, I had to ask myself, well, what does that mean then moving forward also in terms of Islam, in terms of being Muslim? I'm still upset. I'm still uh, 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 worked up about about things that, that are happening, also things that need to be said, but but maybe aren't being said or aren't being said by enough people. Um, and, and I realized that I had to come back to it somehow. And, and it began first with me just kind of sort of yelling into the void, just writing on Medium, uh, not trying to get in touch with anybody, not being on social media, not trying to project my pieces anywhere, just writing out loud, putting things out there and making sure that, okay, what am I feeling right now? Am I good? Am I feeling good about doing this again and doing this under a pen name, uh, which, which, as I've explained to you, is not really to hide my identity so much as, as, as to be able to concentrate everything that I used to be um, into sort of a new, a, a new fold uh, to be able to still talk about these issues without, without sort of hurting my own mind and heart. Um, and I realized, okay, yeah, this is working. I, I, I feel okay about this. And maybe I'll start submitting to publications or maybe I'll start getting in contact with people. Um, and, and, you know, what, one thing led to another, I eventually submitted a, a, a piece to, uh, reformer mag on medium, which seemed like a pretty good place to, to publish what I had in mind. Um, and that's, and that's how things got started with my connection to, to reformer and, and its principal editor, editor, uh, Jay Saw. In my opinion, you're still an academic. It's, there's this incredible arrogance with academia, which is one of the reasons I, stay away from it. And people say, why don't you go back and get your master's and your PhD? And it sounds really nice, but two things. One, it's not realistic to my life right now. And secondly, uh, everything I'm doing is obviously more loosely constructed, but it's on the same path. And I feel like once you have that mindset of, of an academic or a scholar or a free thinker, that's not something you put aside and you walk away from. That's just, um, that's sort of a you know a sleeve that you wear and you you carry forward with and so even though you leave academia i think you have this incredible asset with your background and with your ability to critically think and your knowledge base to still continue that forward so i applaud you for making the decision that a lot of people i don't think would have been able to just pass up on i think that sort of um you know the the laurel of oh i get to have a piece of paper and i get to do this it's it's very very brave and it really speaks to your character with Reformer, you have a series called Don't Rush Rushed the Issue. Don't Rush the Issue. Can you tell me about it? Uh, yeah. So, uh, of course, as, as, as you well know, uh, the inaugural episode uh, is with you. Uh, we are so happy to have you as our, as our first guest. I'm very happy about it personally. Um, and, you know, the, the, with Reformer, uh, we're, we're looking to strike a balance. Um, and the balance is this. On the one hand, um, we do feel as if most of the media environment is failing us, that, that a lot of complex issues are cheaply simplified or just not discussed in, in the right way. And so on the one hand, we want to balance things out by going a little more in-depth. We want to go past the superficiality of what is most of the media environment, especially the sort of clickbaity nature of a lot of articles. Uh, and, and on the one hand, we, 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 we do need to entice people. I think the clickbait aspect is a bit unavoidable, rightly or wrongly, there needs to be an, as an element of that. But we try to get past that. We try to um, uh, encourage people to read and engage with our long-form articles, which try to delve deeper into the issues or raise issues that are already being talked about, but maybe provide an alternative viewpoint, you know, make people read our, our articles and think, well, gee, maybe I, maybe I need to rethink what I, what I thought about this issue, or maybe I wasn't thinking about this correctly before. Um, and then on the other end, we, we want to go deeper. We want long-form articles. That's what we emphasize on current affairs, social issues, and policy. But but we also don't want to be so dense and so complicated and so removed that 
that that uh, our articles come off as some kind of academic uh, historiographical exercise and just totally turn people off. Uh, that that was one of the major criticisms I had of the academy. Is so much academic writing. It's like, look, I'm an academic. I, I, I you know, like I'm doing this for I'm I, I'm doing this as as a living, so to speak, when I was still in academia. And like some of the stuff you read, it's just like, what are you talking about? And what is your point? What are you trying to say here? Why why can't you just say it plainly? And why why do you need this? This much historiography included, just just to make a simple point. And so we want that balance between, on the one hand, what is a fairly superficial media environment, what is an academy that is out of touch, and even when they're not out of touch, uh, overly complex, inaccessible, and and, and dense. Um, and uh, you know, on the one hand, we're we're happy with the progress we've made so far in, in our articles, but uh, you know, we do recognize that the environment is one um, that is that is that is mixed, that is saturated. Uh, there's a lot of competition. Also, the culture has changed. Not not every. I mean, we 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 never want to change what we ask for in an article at Reformer Mag. But we also recognize that most people out there are not looking to read longer articles, or they'll they'll tune in for an article, maybe read with a ha- half of it or a quarter of it or whatever, sort of skim, get the gist, and then move on. I think that's generous. Um, so most want... people read the title. That's it. I, I I yeah no I know I'm trying to be gracious here, but I, I realize that it's it's people. I mean. These days, if, if something is one click away, it's it's already too far. Everything yeah. needs to be on the same page at the same time. I mean, you know, uh, you know, God help you if you want, actually want to get people to move to another web page. But but in any case, I we, we we recognize that we don't want reformer to change when it comes to our articles. We want to support writers who like complex, deep writing, but accessible writing. Uh, we want to elevate people who would otherwise be ignored, uh, ignored or not even acknowledged by other publications, uh, whether mainstream or 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 alternative on medium. Uh, but we realize, okay, we do need to diversify our content. But, and, and that doesn't mean we're losing anything. Uh, uh, you know, by, by doing Don't Rush the Issue, by having these audio interviews with, with people uh, uh, like you, uh, civil society, politics, economics, business, you know, our, our plan is to then bring in more people because more people are willing to listen rather than to read. And that's okay. We're not judging that. In fact, we can still go really in depth uh, because there's there's potentially no limit to how long we can have an interview. We can have a really rich conversation, like I just did with you. Uh, I look forward to more with with other guests we're planning to line up. Um, and in turn, maybe just maybe, uh, if people like our audio interviews, they may be interested in, in in actually doing a little bit of reading and realizing that yeah, we're focused on quality content. You know, we 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 want to make the audience happy. We want to make them interested, but we. We also want to educate them. We want them to feel like they've gotten something from us from spending time at, at our site. And uh, if that starts with the audio, audio interviews, then great. Then maybe you can just you know do one or two clicks and check out one of our articles too, because we have some really quality writers, thoughtful people who take their time. We also take their take our time with our editorial process, and it's not to belittle our writers. We 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 do it to to. We were very keen on helping our writers. We we. we we know we want to make them better, better writers, better thinkers. We want to elevate. We, like I said, we want to elevate people. Um, and and so by having this mixed approach, we're hoping that we can maintain what's been a very healthy growth period over over just the last couple months. Maintain at, at the very minimum, maintain that that growth, if not uh, expand on it further and reach new audiences who would who would otherwise maybe not give us a second look. Would you call yourself a reformer? <laughs> it's a great. That's a great question, I, and I don't know whether you actually uh, caught this separately from the question from your question or not. But I realize that unconsciously, I've always been describing myself as a Muslim pluralist and not as a reformer. 
Um, it, it, I think what it is is this. I, I, on the one hand, I know that a lot of people, Muslim or not, may read my writings and immediately think, oh, yeah, this guy's a Muslim reformer. And, and look, I consider that a compliment. I appreciate it if that's what people think when they come away from my writings or, or from, from or, or let's say, in the future from, from interviews and such. Um, I, I almost feel like I don't deserve the title. Because you know, here's the thing. Pluralist is a state of being. I am absolutely a Muslim pluralist. Reformer, though, implies something else, something bigger. It implies that somehow I'm, I'm like tied into the community, whether the Muslim community or other communities. I'm tied in. I'm engaged. I'm sort of out there doing the, 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 the real stuff. And admittedly, I'm not. I haven't really been connected to the broader Muslim community in a real sense for a very long time. Um, I'm I'm just a guy. I'm just a fellow who who uh, who is happy to share his opinion. Who's uh, happy to talk to other people. Um, I, I, in the in process, if I share things about Muslim pluralism, or if I share things about Muslim reform, then I'm very pleased about that. Um, I leave it to others to judge um, me. But I, I uh, like I said, I, I almost feel like reformer is something. Reformer is you. Reformer is Zudi Jasser and so many other people who are actually out there doing a lot of hard work and making, I think, a lot more sacrifices than I am. I'm just a Muslim pluralist, uh, uh, giving what is left of what used to be kind of an old, what, what, what was an older life for me, what is now a very different life for me. Um, uh, I'll always be a Muslim pluralist. Uh, uh, whether or not I have done enough to count as a, as an, as, as a true reformer, uh, I'll, I'll let other people judge that. We'll get you there. <laughs> we'll get you there in time. I, I do want to get your take on, you know, with, with your background, which is so rich, and your depth of knowledge, which is truly, it, it's remarkable. And I'm just, I'm blown away by that alone. How would you, how would you assess reform? The reform, I don't want to say the reform movement as, as one monolith, but the reform sort of era that we're in right now. How would you assess it? our challenges, our progress, what would you make of it? Yeah, I think, I, I think for me, I mean, maybe, maybe because of my background in intellectual history, I, I, I am very much focused on process and with process, focus on structures. And I think the, unfortunately, I think the structures are sort of working against Muslim reform uh, uh, right now. Uh, I mean, look, when it comes to the Muslim majority world between limitations on substantive democracy and uh, uh uh, limitations on, on religious critique through the existence of blasphemy laws, uh, whether or not they're enforced or they're just simply there and instill a great deal of fear. Um, you know, it, that is a major problem because also even when Muslim reformers want to speak out and want to try something in their own Muslim majority country, here's the thing, even if even if the government doesn't come after you, the laity might. And that's the thing. The, the sad part is that the danger comes from both the state and the laities. Um, and that's the harder part to admit because, it, like, it's not—it's not just about dictators or it's not just about authoritarianism. It's also about just regular Muslims who who start mundane violence in 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 the most random situations where people get killed over nothing. And and that's the thing that I always emphasize that you know Muslims stop acting like you and I we are fooling anyone anymore, right? People watch the news; they know what's going on out there, and it's ugly. And they're they they no longer see. It was easy to see terrorists and say, yeah, most Muslims are like that. Okay, let's move on. No problem. It's harder to see the way Muslim-majority countries function and think, well, wait a minute. This isn't just about terrorism, right? This is about Muslims and Islam itself. How do we move past that? And should we, in fact, be scared of these people? And should we be scared of this faith? Or should we be scared about, about how this faith has underdeveloped compared to what we're familiar with in the West? Um, so th th that's a big obstacle when it comes to the Muslim-majority world. Even among Muslim minorities, I think the the rhetoric, the discourses, the the, the the apologetics, the denialism, 
uh, when it comes to the problems of Muslims in Islam. That's a big impediment to uh, reform. Also, the the social, the, the communal and social pressures that keep a lot of Muslims who maybe do have alternative viewpoints and do maybe want to have, live a different type of life, but maybe they can't because they're caught in a communal fabric that 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 either they can't escape from or they're not sure how to escape from it. And maybe when it comes to uh, you know, let's say the you know the UK, which which you know I, I I have serious issues with this that that the UK essentially runs its internal kind of ethnic and religious affairs as if it's still the British Empire, but this isn't the British Empire. People aren't supposed to have autonomy on certain things, uh, on on like cultural and personal issues. This is Britain proper. Um, you know, fix it. You can't allow this stuff to grow. Um, you know, right under your belt, and um, and uh, and let's say France on a different front, uh, French secularism. In the form of laicite, French republicanism with that secularism assumes that everyone is inherently equal. And if you're equal, then you can't have targeted policy towards certain groups to help combat a certain problem. Um, in many ways, it's idealism getting in the way of reality. So different Western countries also have their own institutional or philosophical problems that prevent them from dealing with with uh, with Islamism as an issue uh, in different ways, depending on what we're talking about. Now, let's say, sort of to go back to our arena, uh, United States, North America. I mean, pause it for the US one second. Even... I'm going to pause you for one second. Yeah. And we're going to start sure. that sentence up in just 10 seconds. I just have to open the door. Okay? Oh, okay. Sure, sure, sure. Sorry. So you were saying the U.S. Yeah, no, no not a problem. Uh, so, so let's say returning to our arena, um, uh, U.S. and North America. I mean, within the U.S. and then, of course, you know this as well as I do. Muslim population is already it's on one hand prominent in the public discourse, but also very small. And within that already small percentage uh, relative to the rest of the population, uh, very divided. Uh, depending on, on 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 sect, persuasion, especially ethno-national grouping. Um, in many ways, you know, we always talk about Muslim Americans, and yet, is there really a Muslim American per se? Are we really just not a collection of very disparate, very different groups? Um, and 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 I on the, and that's the thing. I don't I don't I don't. On the one hand, I I encourage all Muslims in their own way to try to talk about these issues in even regular mundane circumstances. But of course, I would never judge any Muslim for not being more involved, because of course, as you know, that involves a lot of time. It involves a lot of sacrifice. It also, it also, uh, you know, it involves, you know, pretty much volunteering yourself to become a whipping post, and it's not a pleasant thing. Mm. Um, you know, why would most people wouldn't want to volunteer for that? And there are most Muslims out there who are not Islamists, who are not interested in any kind of religious chauvinism, who just want to carry on with their lives and feel like, well, why does this have to be my problem? And I do understand that, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't judge it. I, I, I only want people to be involved and try to talk to others. To the extent that that others around them know that they're aware of the issues, that they're concerned about the issues, because that does filter through. If, if enough people know that at least there are many Muslims thinking about these things, and they're also just as troubled as non-Muslims about it, that may be enough through time to stave off a potentially illiberal future that is bad, not just for Muslims, but bad for for for, for everybody. Uh, an illiberal future, a reactionary future that 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 that. He's focused on dividing people into different groups uh, that that 
that that takes harsh measures when it comes to uh, uh, regulating the behavior and, and the position of people within within any given state. Uh, that's one that Europe is already heading to. It's one that I certainly hope that the U.S., uh, uh, North America, Canada does not head towards. You're more generous than I am. My my view of it is I do agree that this is a luxury, and like you said, very eloquently, you know, you're essentially volunteering yourself to be a whipping post when you do become more public. But when I hear Muslims talk, and when I hear them talk yeah. about their identity, it's this, oh gosh, it is so suffocating. It's this, it's I'm a Muslim, or the Muslims. It's, it's very, like you, the, the word I'm going to use is chauvinistic to borrow from you and how you've described the larger right. conversation. And so you don't get to have that and then conveniently walk away from the problem as well. And, you know, yeah. I, I look at it like you you can't just say, oh, I have a child and be like, well, I don't really know what that child's doing or I don't really care or I'm too busy. No, you know, sure, sure. You, know, you are invested, you are involved. And if you're not, then, you know, exit stage. Um, but if you are going to claim to be a Muslim, well, this is what it means to be a Muslim in our generation. I'm sorry, it sucks. It's terrible. It's burdensome. But on some level, we have a duty to be involved. And I think with social media... It doesn't mean that everyone has to go out and become an activist or a writer. Everyone has their own right. strengths and weaknesses, but we do need to at least be available and informed in whatever capacity we can be. We can. It's not. It's not good enough now to to not know that there was a, a jihadi training camp in New Mexico a month ago and what that involved. It's just. Yeah. It's, it's irresponsible yeah. at this point. And if you can't meet yeah. that bare minimum of being informed, then you need to stop you know, banging the Muslim drum. No, I, I agree. And that's the thing. Look, if, if, you, if you're not going to be a part of the public conversation, uh, who am I to say that, who am I to compel you or, 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 or condemn you for, for, for not doing that? But I, I, I do, I do have, I mean, I'm being gracious here, but I do have a serious problem with Muslims who put themselves out there, uh, engage in the sort of victimless stuff, um, and and you know so, you know everything's systemically opposed to us and everything's systemically putting us down. Like excuse me, like most Muslims have a great life in America, and I'm not saying that there aren't uh, issues. There weren't there were issues before. There are definitely issues now. Uh, we need to do, the most important thing that that I hope Muslims and also uh, well-meaning but sometimes misguided non-Muslims make the distinction they need to make is this: we should always stand against. Uh, bashing individuals, right? I, I, of course, I am against Muslim bashing. No individual, just because they are Muslim or just because they're anything else, should ever be attacked just because of who they are. We should always stand against that. That is real bigotry. But that is different from 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 saying, well, then we shouldn't even bother questioning what is what the bigger dynamics in the community. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be questioning what it means to be Muslim. They we shouldn't be questioning. Islam as a religious faith. No, excuse me, because the only reason why the West has become what it is, liberal, pluralized, open, free, democratic, is because people question religious authority. They, they question established authority. The West wouldn't have accomplished what it has. The West would not be what it is today. Muslim and non-Muslim would not be reaping the benefits of being in the West had people not done that. So I urge people to maintain a difference. Of course, let's not have anybody be bashed just because of who they are, but that is totally different from having a proper academic and intellectual uh, debate, a fierce debate on religion, on all issues of importance when it comes to the human social experience, because at the end of the day, it does affect all of us. You mentioned that Islam hasn't evolved or it's been underdeveloped. And mm -hmm. when we talk about reform and we look at you know where we are today and how can Islam or Muslims or however you want to phrase it, whether it's the faith or whether it's the people who follow the faith, how can we further develop? 
do you think in terms of reform, we're going to develop through some sort of Martin Luther declarative statement on the door? Or do you think it's going to be more in line with uh, Judaism and Jewish reform that allowed room for new branches while sustaining the old? I mean, how do you think making Islam, not even Islam, but making Muslims sort of catch up with the 21st century, how do you think that's going to unfold? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, I think it is going to be much more the latter, almost almost like Judaism in America. Um, I, I I think you know, look, the the American social fabric um, it has much just as many issues as any other country. A lot of uh, we've had a lot of setbacks as a country uh, through our history too. Um, but the, there is something special, something unique about the the American landscape and the American social fold. Uh, you know, when I mean, I just you know, I, you, you think about Marx and his comments on religion and and. Let's say, for example, Marx's view on religion as the you know the opiate of the masses, and as 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 never being able to play a role in positive social progress. That was correct from where he was standing in Europe. Uh, his observations on religion were, were 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 totally legitimate. But Marx never visited America. If he had visited America, I think he'd have a very different view of religion. I think he'd at least see the possibility that religion can play a very important social role in progress because religious institutions, there's always been splits and, and fractures, but but those splits and fractures have happened because there have always been new, new and established religious institutions that have been at the forefront of fighting for the right thing, fighting for progress, fighting for pluralization. Um, and so I think that, I mean, it, it's already evidence from from so many Muslim reformers, including yourself, that, that uh, there is a new type of Islam uh, that, that is not about, again, not about substance, but about process and about intellectual culture that has developed, that can continue to develop in the United States. And again, maybe it may, it may I don't know at what point or if it will ever capture even most of the Muslim community, but it will exist and it will grow and it will have its own place. And and no, no chauvinist can do anything about it because this is the United States and they don't have control and our laws protect people against that stuff. Um, and and so I believe that that, that is a good place to, to 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 start, and that is something to hold on to. I mean, you know, look when when the renewal first started, it started in a in a in a in a casual discussion group. It was literally called the Linkaran Discussi, which means discussion circle. It was an informal group, semi-private uh, group of intellectuals who gathered together in a in, in the home of Mukti Ali, the religious affairs minister that I mentioned earlier. They got together in his home in Jakarta, in central Java. And they just talked about things. And that's how it started. I mean, imagine just a bunch of guys sitting around having some food, drinking, having some drinks, and 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 then suddenly it turns into this national movement that has also now been studied by scholars across the globe that has now had institutional legacies that so far have not been able, that have not been stripped by Indonesian Islamists that have withstood the test, uh, and I hope will continue to withstand the test. It all started from a bunch of people getting together in a living room. Um, this, Everything always has to start small. Everything always has to seem insignificant at the beginning. The point is that people have to keep at it. People have to give support to it as much as possible. And also accept the fact that success will actually mean failing with other people or failing with other things. Success is, 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 never, is never a zero-sum thing. Um, now, that's, that's in, that, now, that's in the, now, that's in the West. That's in the United States. When it comes to the Muslim-majority world, of course, it's, it's, it's a lot harder. I mean, if you don't, if you don't have states supporting reform efforts, if you don't have states also going out of their way to protect reformers from laities or from other actors. Uh, also, if the state itself is delegitimized because the leaders are corrupt and they don't care, and they don't bother trying to provide for the general welfare, then of course that becomes associated with reform. That's something, then suddenly reform gets tainted and reform becomes a bad thing that everybody rebels against. 
the Muslim majority world, the Ummah, is, 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 is a much messier uh, uh, situation. And the, the unpleasant reality is this. I mean, if there is going to be some kind of sort of internal shifts, internal, whether it's related to Muslim reform or just the need to change society, a, a lot of that will, 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 will be a matter of rupture. It will not be peaceful. It will not be gradual. It will, it will, it will lead to more civil conflicts and more uh, horizontal, mundane violence. And, and to the extent that the West gets involved or doesn't get involved in what involvement even means, whether it's military or otherwise, some of that collapse in the Muslim-majority world may simply have to happen. It may actually have to happen before anything else can, uh, any sense of stability, any sense of progress can actually start or, or return. And, and, and so what we have to deal with is, is almost an acceptance of an ugliness that we actually can't fix. We also have to limit, we also have to accept the limits of, of our own power. Um, I write about that, among other things, in, in, in a, what's pretty long containment policy against Islamism. We'll save that for another conversation because it's, it's, it's quite lengthy. But, but that's what, what I argue there um, in the spirit of George F. Kennan, the father of, of Soviet containment, is that we also have to accept uh, where we can do things and where we can't. And we also can't treat the need for change or the need to help as some kind of suicide pact because we're going to get in trouble even more if we do. You have me thinking about this containment policy now. Do you have a copy of it by any chance? Uh, yes. So I will, I, will, I will send it. It's my longest piece. It's, 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 it's a lengthy read. About, well, Medium's count puts it at about a half hour or so. I'll send it to you. It's quite controversial, um, quite complex. Uh, I'll send it to you. We can save that for another conversation because it it it, it probably it, it probably needs its own its own duration. Yeah. That's um, yeah, sadomasochist. Because I was about to ask you what what is Islamism? <laughs> where does it come from? How do you think it's changed over the years? But we will save that for another conversation. Yeah, I do yeah. want to end with I do want to end with hate imams. So I don't know how much of that story you followed, but over the last year we've had about four to five, exactly like you described, ruptures of imams going up and and hosting this this really diabolical apocalyptic uh you know rhetoric usually coming from hadiths against jews where even the natural world will turn against jews according to these sermons and what i find really shocking is that just the the comfort with which these sermons are given in this day and age where everything is recordable you know and everything goes viral so quickly you feel comfortable or these imams feel comfortable going up giving the sermon, and oftentimes they're, they're reinforced and supported by the, the board. They are using interfaith groups as proxies to cover their supposed yeah. tolerance. What, what do you make of that? Why is it that we're seeing more hate imams now than possibly you know, before? And every time it happens, by the way, it happens every time there's an issue with Israel. So the last time this really sort of kicked off was because... Right. Israel put up metal detectors. So if putting up metal detectors before you go into Temple Mount is invoking this sort of reaction, and we know the trajectory of human behavior and, and politics and where things yeah. are going, we know this sure. is a problem that's only going to increase, which is why it became sort of a really side project of mine, a real passion as to understanding why are hate imams occurring at this frequency and how are they allowed to thrive in this day and age when you know we're, we're on about either squashing extremism or we're on about uh, in invoking tolerance. So what do you think? Why, why are we seeing this sort of mushrooming effects of hate imams? So uh, just broadly speaking, first beyond just Islam and Muslims, I think there is, we're in, a, we're in a period of human history and some of it is economic. Some of it is just sort of, I think, part of the broader 
uh, development of human civilization that that uh, emotionalism has made a return, and that has that has uh, manifestations in different ways depending on the country, depending on let's say predominant religion or culture involved. Um, I think that there is a lot of with with the return of emotionalism and the need to feel moved by something, whether that whether feeling moved is from something positive or something negative. With that emotion, with that sort of surge and return of emotionalism and that appeal to emotionalism, comes a lot of opportunism. And uh, that has manifested in different ways between East and West, between uh, uh, secular leaders, religious leaders, and so on. Um, you see a lot of opportunists coming to the fore, com- coming to the fore because they realize it's easy to get a following. It's easy to get a following if you just hit the right notes, um, and if you focus on what people are angry about, whether and and, and you know it's like angry about, it and then okay, so what's the problem? Well, the problem may be real or it may be imagined, but the point is that there is a problem in their minds. And they want to feel angry about it. They want to shift blame. Um, and that's, you know, I think that I think the most extreme form of that is global Islamism at this point, although we do see versions of that in the West, certainly versions of that here in the United States. Um, there is a need to feel angry, a need to feel emotions, a need to feel like that one person or that or that set of figures is, is talking to me and speaking directly to what I'm upset about. Um, and so tying that back, back specifically to Hidi Moms, Hadith. And, and, and Israel, you know, when it comes to Israel, look, I understand uh, why people uh, feel like uh, is Israeli. Uh, I understand why people have a lot of problems with Israeli policy. I do as well. I think that it's important, though, to recognize the difference between Israeli policy and the larger Israeli public. And then beyond that, uh, global uh, Jewry. Um, I, I have a serious problem with Muslims uh, now who use Israel as just a catch-all excuse to always say something bad or, uh, God forbid, commit some violent act against Jews everywhere. Uh, let me say unequivocally that that is unacceptable. You can take an issue, you can have issues with Israeli policy, and and yet there's no excuse for taking that out on, on, any, on any person anywhere, any civilian, any Jew, just because you think that there's a connection because it's Israel. That's unacceptable. Um, but but yes, when it comes to the Haiti moms, Israel is a flashpoint. It, 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 there, there is there is religious there is religious significance because of history, because of the importance of Al Quds, the importance of Jerusalem. There is also historical memory because it's tied into grand Muslim visions of of of, of the Crusades, of, of of Western and European intervention in, in Muslim affairs, and that you know this is our land and the whole map should be ours, it shouldn't belong to anybody else. Um, but but also it's a, it's another excuse for leaders to dis, to distract and deflect from their own failures uh, and whether those are state leaders uh, heads of state heads of government or it's just a random imam in some mosque uh, who who thinks that he can gain a big following and with that money or prestige or whatever he thinks he can gain uh, from engaging in in uh, in this kind of activity. Um, you know, when it comes to the, you know, of course, we can look at the Quran and Meccan versus Medinan verses. We can certainly look at the Sunnah and the Hadith. I, I mean, I have my own issues with the whole uh, Sunnah and Hadith tradition because, I mean, to, to be frank, I consider it hearsay. Uh, I, I, I just don't, I just don't, I, I think it completely gets in the way and, and, and uh, of, of, of real reform and real progress. And I think it was just an excuse. I think as a constructive thing, it was an excuse for uh, a certain kind of power consolidation um, in, in in the early years, in the early generations of Islam. Um, uh, sorry, can you hear? Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. 
Okay, no, it's fine. I think one of my earbuds just like went out or something. I just want to make sure. Um, uh, so yeah, so continuing on, uh, I, I think I, th- I, 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 you know, when it comes to Haiti moms and 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 the the kind of things that they typically cite, especially from from the Hadith, I think at, at a certain point, if real progress wants to be made, the Hadith needs to be put aside. Um, I realize that's a difficult decision for anyone coming from a traditional fold and raised in a certain way, um, but there are certain verses in religion that at a certain point you can't. Not everything can be interpreted and reinterpreted. Some things do, in fact, need to be abandoned. Some things do, in fact, need to be, I don't know whether you want to put it in terms of being condemned or simply saying that this had its historical place. And that historical place is not here and not now. Uh, because even just dealing with the Quran on its own is, is already a monumental uh, project. The Hadith just, just, just makes it even more complex and makes it uh, even more difficult. I love that you say that. I've said the same thing that the Hadith is a secondhand. It's a secondhand source, first of all, if even that. And it's exactly that. It's hearsay. It's he said, she said is how you can best describe it, which yeah. is hardly academic. And when I've proposed just, you know, people say, well, how do you deal with that? Well, you just, you know, you just dethrone it. And or you just get rid of it or you just don't you stop relying on it. You use it as a as a reference text and not rather instead of relying on it as some sort of um sacred scripture and the thing that i hear from people is oh you can't do that like why not done it's that easy yeah how do you actually get um muslims to realize that you know and i imagine you and i are saying this it's very easy i mean in our minds right now boom done it's it's a sign but how do you how do you actually challenge an imam on that ground and say that you know what this 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 verse has no place in modern society anymore. It's uh, against universal human rights. It's against human dignity. How do you have that conversation with an imam? So if you were sitting with an imam right now, mm. uh, let's say Amr Shaheen and, and Davis, who did rely on this hadith, what do you say to him? So I would I I would do it this way. I would sort of I would open it up by sort of circling back to what we were discussing uh, earlier. Uh, uh, sort of doing the basic exegetical theology and sort of peering into history. History that, mind you, isn't actually hidden. I mean, uh, even among traditional circles, many traditional scholars and many and many laities are actually well aware of the history of not just the Hadith, but also the history of the Quran itself and, and how it began as uh, how under under the Caliph uh, uh, Abu Bakr uh, was, uh, was actually not consolidated. There were multiple versions and compilations sort of circulating around. He, he didn't feel the need to consolidate them and that the consolidation only happened later uh, under Umar al-Uthman. So, you know, all you need to do is peer into history, uh, uh, use the sources that indicate that even traditional scholars recognize this, but they just choose not to talk about it or choose not to emphasize it. And to sort of circle back to what we were talking about before, about exegetical theology and and, and Jesus Christ in Islam, that uh, uh, point out the fact that every faith, even Islam, uh, again, hard to admit, but, but impossible to avoid, every faith is a mix of what is of faith and what is of history. And the key is to recognize uh, what is of faith, and in that case, certain things that can't that can't be proven by history, can't be proven by scholarship. Right? You, you can't prove that Jesus was. Uh, you can't prove through history that Jesus was the Messiah or that Muhammad was a prophet of God. Only faith can prove those things. History, however, can prove other things. They can prove why Muslims believe uh, 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 Jesus was not crucified. They can uh, uh, prove or at least explain why there are various versions of the gospel. It's important to make that distinction, no matter what faith you're talking about, including Islam, that there is such thing as of faith and of history, and that looking at that does not have to change your devotion to God. It doesn't make you less of a Muslim, less of a Christian, less of a whatever. 
It makes you, in fact, a more thinking person. In fact, you can, you can make the argument that it brings you closer to God, because, in fact, if we were to think that God did create this universe, everything in this universe is a result of, 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 of God and his creation. Um, and if God really is the master of all things, then how can you, in fact, reduce God to a single book? How can you, in fact, reduce God to a single text? Is it not incidentally or unintentionally insulting to do that? I love that. It's beautiful. Is that the same message you would give to Muslims? To Absolutely. Help, yeah. Absolutely. How do we get them, yeah. you know, in these sermons and in the aftermath? Mm. We don't see enough Muslims coming forward and speaking out. And this isn't necessarily to do with theology. I think this is more to do with um, social pressure. So in the aftermath yeah. of these sermons, when I talk to Muslims, I, I hear this, 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 this glowing oration of grief and, and disappointment and protest mm. against these sermons. And then I say, well, do you want to come on a podcast? And I offer podcasts to be completely anonymous because no one needs, like you said, no one needs to go out there and become a whipping post. And it, and it is crushing to their social right. status in society, but they don't want to come forward in any, any meaningful way. And so what we see at large is very, very few people, very, very few Muslims come forward and become that public critical voice in the way that you know I am or you are or a few other people are. What can we do to encourage Muslims to be more comfortable with pushing back? I, I think, uh, you know, again, uh, communal and family structures can be difficult to, 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 to bypass because on the one hand, you don't, you don't want to you don't want to violate them. But at the same time, you need to recognize that there are certain coer co coercive aspects uh, in, at work that, in fact, should be challenged in some way, as long as it's not overly intrusive. Or, and, uh, but but I, I think when it comes to sort of the sort of the culture of the way Muslims feel Islam and the way they look at Islam, both presently and historically, the, the sort of the, the, the funny sort of ironic thing about uh, about modernism in general and about uh, by extension Islamism as being part of modern uh, a peculiar part of Islamic modernism um, is that you know you could almost simplify it by saying that this is about making Islam great again right it's all about greatness it's all about we need to go back we got to go back it was so everything was so great before we got to go back and then got to find out what we lost um, well okay but but you know if, if Islam's substance has always been the same then 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 what's changed isn't really the substance. Again, it's about process. And and if if you want to go back and make things great again, if you want to make Muslims admired, if you want to make Muslims thoughtful, well, then go back. Then then be honest with yourself and 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 go back to the period where we, as a civilization and as a people, accomplished the most. And that was the early opposite period when Mutazilite theology thrived. That was when people believed that the Quran was created. And that didn't mean that they didn't think the Quran was was divine revelation. Um. In that, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. My my headphones just died. Can you still hear me? I can, but the audio oh. was better before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll come up a little closer. Um, so uh, the so go back to the Mutazilite theology. So it, it didn't mean that they rejected the Quran as as um, as uh, divine revelation, but it did mean that it was not coterminous with God. It meant that scholars could come together 
uh, debate not just philosophy, but even debate religion and the merits of different religions and each other's religions. Uh, Islamic rationalism thrived in this period for that reason, because actually there were relatively few limits and because the Quran could be read alongside other texts, Greek, Indian, etc. If you're going to be honest about what's going to make Islam and Muslims great or thoughtful again, um, then be honest about what it takes. Don't say that it's just about returning to the text and taking it as is. Um, don't say it's not just a, it, it's just about getting back in touch with like controlling society and controlling behavior. Uh, that it's, it, it's it's either ignorant or it's disingenuous. Uh, get back to the intellectual side. Get back to the to the stagnation that's occurred and the fact that that stagnation is not fixed. It can is 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 not is not is 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 not fixed in time. It can in fact be altered. It can be reawakened. But you need to be honest about what that means. But this is where a lot of uh, false or misplaced pride comes into play. Muslims don't want to believe that they actually need to do what Christians and Jews have done, right? It, it, that this is this is sort of this is the supremacist, the chauvinist angle. No, 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 we don't need to do that. We we just need to return to the Quran. That's all we got to do. We don't need we don't these the Christians needed to secularize or the Jews needed to secularize to progress. We don't we we don't need to do that. We don't need to do, have any kind of enlightenment, any kind of uh, intellectual process to that that is multi generational. And that's totally disingenuous. Of course, of course, Muslims do. Muslims are human beings. Islam is a, is, is, is even if you believe Islam came from God, Islam is, 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 is now a possession, is a construct of human beings. And human beings are not God. Human beings are not divine. We are God's children, but we are not divine. We are not perfect. We are fallible. And, and, and Muslims need to start recognizing that. So we need to abandon the time machine fantasy that we can just pop it in, dial it back, and everything's ace. Yes, and, and and part of this, I mean, look, some of this may may have to come through through institutions, whether state or religious, but also a lot of this also comes in the Muslim family. Uh, I wrote about this separately too. That I was also helped by my. It wasn't just being an abangan. And, and being open-minded from the start, but also my mother's own attitude of always questioning everything, always encouraging me to question uh, uh, everything. You know, don't don't sit on my laurels. Also, if, if you're feeling frustrated or, or bothered by something, you know, uh, are are you, are you really trying to blame some one one person or one thing for it, or what's the bigger issue? Is it really just one group or one person that, uh, uh, to, to blame here, or or do you need to get a, a, a bigger picture? Um, Muslim parents need to stop. I feel like a lot of Muslim families teach this fantasy that somehow everything's always been rosy in Islam and it only went to hell once we got colonized or once this crusade started or 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 or, 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 or once uh, Western power started intervening even in the post-colonial period. Uh, that you know that's nonsense. Muslims have been fighting each other all all the time. Muslims have made mistakes. Muslims have have been also colonizers and slavers and all kinds of really unpleasant things. Uh, the old Muslim world for its time in the Middle Ages, was per, was was progressive because minorities had a place, but it was a communal place. It was not a liberal place. Mm. And the idea that you're going to go back to say that like, oh yeah, non-Muslims had it great. There weren't any problems at all. Total uh, equal status. That's nonsense. It's disingenuous. It's false. Um, uh, stop idealizing the, uh, the past because doing that inherently limits the present and the future. And 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 again, if if you if you want to compete. Uh, if I'm going to appeal then to Muslim pride, then it's like if you want to compete with the West, if you want to be seen as the same as equal, well, then learn something from them because they've clearly made some right decisions. What would you say? You, you touch on so many different points here, but what would you say is the single most factor holding Muslims back in our generation? Um, I, th- I I I would uh, uh, somewhat repeat. Um, a combination of my earlier points, which is that 
um, it's definitely the blame game. I mean, whenever you talk about, whenever I, you talk about, or I try to talk about problems uh, related to Muslims and Islam to so many, too many other Muslims, it's always, well, yeah, but the West and, oh, but colonialism and, oh, the intervention and oh, yeah, neoliberalism. And again, I'm not saying that these things haven't had a role, but the idea that you're going to ignore uh, uh, over a millennia of Islamic history um, and and you're going to ignore the fact that, well, wait a minute, why was the Muslim world weak in the first place? Why didn't it have uh, intellectual and technological progress the way the West did? Um, the West didn't do that to the Muslim world. The West didn't force Muslims to go backward in their theological stance, to to stop comparing uh, their own philosophies with Greek philosophy and, and Indian philosophy. Uh, the West didn't force Muslims to stop all that. The West didn't force the Ottoman Empire to ban the printing press. Mm. The West didn't do any of these things. Muslims did it. Muslims did it to each other. Muslims did it to themselves. And if you want to go ahead and live in, in fantasy land and act like that didn't happen, uh, I can't really stop you. But but with more and more knowledge being spread, more and more people being aware, uh, fewer and fewer people are going to believe you. Fewer fewer people are going to are going to buy into your position, and you 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 look like a complete fool because you can't hide this stuff from people anymore. People actually understand more about Islam than they ever have. Uh, the irony. Whenever people throw out this term Islamophobia, I have my own issues with the term anyway. Uh, but they always say it's because of ignorance. And I just I, I can't help but laugh at that. I, like, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Ignorance? People know more about Islam and Muslims and what's going on among Muslims than they ever have before. It's not ignorance. It's awareness. People are scared mm -hmm. and they have a reason to be. What's their reason? They recognize, they may not, I mean, I'm not saying that they may recognize the new, the same nuances that I do, but there is a basic understanding that, wait a minute, like, what's going on among Muslims? I understand a lot of bad stuff has happened to Muslim-majority countries and among Muslims, but why is the response, why is the global intensity and the global scale of violence and, and, and the, the really unhealthy discourse about always wanting to blame someone else, why is it exceptionally uh, uh, pronounced among Muslims. I mean, you think, let's just take one issue like colonialism, because so many Muslims love to cite colonialism as being the thing that did it, when of course it's, that's just not true. But let's, let's keep in mind, most of the world has been colonized. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa was also colonized. The Congolese under the Belgians had it the worst. The, the, what was called the Congo Free State was an amusement park of death for King Leopold II. It was a horrible, horrible place. And yet, where do, do you see the Congolese shooting up people in Brussels, stabbing people in Belgium? Where, where is the Congolese reaction to that? Um, the Sikhs had a great empire led by a very wise ruler named Maharaja Ranjit. Uh, they took the Kohinoor from the Afghans. Of, of all the people, they managed to take it from the Afghans. The Kohinoor was then taken from them by the British and cut up and turned into the crown jewels. Where are the Sikhs blowing themselves up in the United Kingdom? Where are the Sikhs feeling angry about how they lost their empire and how they lost their greatness? Look, people can feel what they want to feel. It doesn't mean they have to project it outward. Uh, not all people have had the same response as Muslims, and that's what non-Muslims see. They see that a lot of people have suffered, but they're not all reacting the same way. Right. And Muslims stand out, and Muslims stand out in a really negative way. And and Muslims keep so many Muslims keep running around as if like as if as if they don't realize that this is happening. That people see them as as a peculiar category, and peculiar is not a positive thing mm. in this case. Why do you think we have this sort of sense of denial mixed with rage? I mean, where where is that coming from? Is that is that theology? Is that culture? I mean, why is this blanket characteristic? so widespread 
I think there is uh, some of it is a bit of a constructed c- a culture, but some of the that, some of that construction I, I think is somewhat informed by the faith. I never want to say that definitively or fatalistically, as if that can't change. But but I think there is there is the image of Islam as the as you know Muhammad is the last prophet and Islam is the final revelation. Now here's the thing about that: uh, depending on who you are as a person, that either makes you very humble or it makes you really arrogant. And I think that's the split. Either you recognize that you see Islam as part of this long history of humanity going all the way through Jesus, through Moses, all the way back to Adam, all the way back to the first human being, first child of God created by the divine. And you either look at that history and you see yourself at the end of it and you you are humbled by it, you're overwhelmed by, by the notion, or you see it and you say, ah, yes, we're the supreme ones because we're the last. And in fact, all history is supposed to end with us. Um, and that's where the problem comes in. If you're if you're part of the latter group, um, th- then you're probably out to make trouble, if not militantly, then at least socially or civil politically, because you have a supremacist attitude. You believe that everyone else has to fall before you because you're the last one. If you're part of the former group, and and you know you and I would probably count in that group, then 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 you see yourself at the end of all this, and you think, wow, what an incredible thing, what a humbling. Uh, piece of the universe, what a humbling piece of the divine that 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 we are, that we could be the last in line, and it makes you humble. It doesn't make you arrogant. But again, that all depends on the person. It depends on the on the communal structure, uh, etc. I've always felt that that attitude of we're the last in line was um, someone just closing the game really quickly and saying, "Okay, you know, I'm furthest ahead in monopoly right now. That's it. Game <laughs> over. We're done." If just to yeah. to risk that no one else would come forward with anything else. And, and so that's just how I always saw it, that we have such yeah. potential. We have such potential as a human race and to just, you know, at one point in history, put a dot in this in this immense right. timeline, which I can't even say a timeline exists because if you look at the actual quantum physics of what it means to be alive and at to oh. any point say, boom, here's a dot, done, chapter closed. It's just yep. so premature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, I think is whether it's Muslims or anybody else, again, it's understanding, uh, 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 engaging in intellectual pursuits, understanding science. I don't know how you can take it in and not feel humble. I mean, we can think about God and God's creation and we're we're the children of God and so on. But then, of course, you look at what science proves and and you, you, you see on this on this massive quantum timeline, as you said, that humanity is a sliver, a sliver of this entire universe in terms of the time that has passed. And you have to be humbled by it. And, and I think and I think if you if you if you don't know about it or if you know about it and you choose to close yourself off, that's that's when you get caught up with your own ego, with your own with your own sense of importance. Mm, well said. I think the uh, if I had to say if I had to answer my own question for what's the single most factor holding us back i would say it's a lack of curiosity we just, we're Ugh, just not, absolutely you know we're just not curious and we're just spoon-fed information um, yep. you know and propaganda and, and i don't think our current climate with technology is helping which is why i understand why so many of people of faith are returning back to a more traditional way of living which is why i really respect Judaism in the sense that it it takes the sabbath and it, it steps away from the world as it has become and i think in yeah. some sense, you know, that would be advisable for us because I think we just get so, it's very easy to get caught up. And that's not to blame Muslims or anyone else. I think that's just the way we're neurologically hardwired is, is for those quick dopamine hits. 
And so when we're getting that, and, and you know, and we are in a society that's faster and faster, and it's and it's moving, um, you know, at, at rates that are not normal. I mean, we've lived, what's the math, 40,000 years? I mean, how long have, you know, 40,000 years, and all of a sudden, we're, we're in this period of time where we're not living in, in a way that is compatible with, um, you know, human existence, just biologically speaking. So I don't think that helps. And so with with the combination of that sort of cocktail of, uh, of you know, factors, and we, we look at, you know, we're just conditioned to not uh, reward curiosity, to not make space for curiosity. Uh, and yeah. so all the more reason why the work you're doing is so important and others like yourself. And on that note, thank you for chatting with me today. And I hope the next one will be about Islamism. We'll take it from a deep dive there. That sounds great, Shereen. I, I'm very grateful for this uh, opportunity to, to speak with you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm also very grateful for your compliments. I really appreciate it. Of course, of course. We'll get you to be a reformer, full-fledged, out in public. With <laughs> sounds good. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye.